Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, everybody. I'm Emily Trenum, and today we're talking about landmarks districts. Um, I'm pleased to welcome Susie Askew, who's with the Valentine Evergreen neighborhood, and Jennifer Amito from the Crosstown neighborhood. Both neighborhoods are pursuing landmarks district status, and we're going to hear a little more about the neighborhoods today and what the process has been like. And then after the break, um, Holly Jansen Fulkerson from Memphis Heritage is going to be here, and she's going to talk a little more about Landmarks District generally, and then what some different kinds of historic districts are, like the National Register Districts, uh, just to kind of go through what some of the differences are between those things. So stay tuned for that. Um, but now, uh, welcome, Jennifer, and welcome, Susie. Thank, Thank you. you. So let's start off by just talking um, with you individually for a minute about the about the two neighborhoods. Uh, most people are familiar with Crosstown, I think, but tell us what the boundaries are of the Landmarks District you're proposing and then what some of the things in that neighborhood, some of the character or the buildings or why do you want to, you know, have protections that the Landmark, Landmarks District could potentially offer? Yeah, great. Thank you, Emily, for having us here today. Um, they're the boundaries. They are Poplar is going to be to the south, and the north will be um, Autumn Avenue, and then to the east it'll be Claybrook, and then to the west it'll just be right there, um, I forty Bellevue, right where it cuts off. So on okay. the west side of Bellevue. So we're going to be tucked right underneath the Speedway Historic District with only the Concourse and Tennyson Brothers in between us, and then on the east side. We'll just have the uh, Cleveland corridor, commercial corridor, separating us from the Evergreen Historic District. Okay. So what's what's special about Crosstown that you wanted to, you and your neighbors wanted to pursue the, the Landmarks District? Yeah, so it just made sense. We, um, I don't know if much people have read most of the history of Crosstown neighborhood, but it dates back to the 1850s. Um, and so Henry A. Montgomery actually owned some land where Mortec is sitting now. Um, and then Peter Van, Van Fleet owned the other property that is between Claybrook and Montgomery on Poplar, um, where Memphis Tech High now sits. So both had, you know, the historically large architectural, like Victorian style um, homes and a significant amount of property as well. Um, and their houses were later demolished to allow for, of course, more tech and to allow for Memphis Tech High. Um, and then their land was subdivided up and then houses were built. Um, so from basically from 1850 till like the development ending in 1923, really. Um, and then there were some later spurts of houses that popped up, you know, maybe one or two in the 1940s. And then, of course, we had some uh apartment buildings that came up and that are the more box shaped apartment buildings that came up in the 1970s. Um, but apart from just the development starting in the 1850s, of course, we have the significant area of where the trolley tracks actually came down from Poplar and then crossed at actually Poplar and Cleveland. So individuals that were coming from downtown, they would say, I'm going to cross town on the trolley tracks to get to the Crosstown neighborhood. Um, Henry A. Montgomery actually used his own cobblestones to pave Poplar um, because he was upset that the city hadn't paved down where the trolley tracks are now at Poplar and Cleveland. And so after the city eventually paved the rest of Poplar, those cobblestones were removed from Poplar Avenue. And there's actually a library on Montgomery Street that has those cobblestones um, the, that basically the cobblestones were used to construct the house, um, but it used to be a library. Some of the property still owned by the Montgomery family is still there. And likewise with the Peter Van Fleet family, they had like a storage unit that actually is still there that sits behind uh, Memphis Tech High. 
Um, and then there, of course, there's the Peter Flan Fleet neighborhood because they had a park actually in our neighborhood directly behind their house. And so if you live in Van Fleet Park, you lived in probably a percentage of, I mean, part of what they um, had, I mean, part of their you know land was actually in where your house is currently sitting. Um, and so apart from just that development, um, we had, of course, just the homes and style. Like we have one house that was built, um, by architect Victor Dunkery. Um, you know, we have the, the basic bungalows and craftsman style, um, style houses that are in this area, even just surrounding across the street from us on Poplar. Um, we have where Temple Israel built their, one of their first, of course, yep. downtown, they had, um, um, Mari Elementary off Bellevue, which was demolished in 1997. And that elementary school was built in 1908. Um, and so there has been some significant amount of, um, you know, demolition of houses in our area because of maybe lack of, you know, maintenance or just the property is sold and, you know, it's just sitting, sitting there and whatever. So those two acres of land where Mari Elementary School was, it's two acres, they're still vacant um, and nothing has been built on it or reconstructed. Well, I was going to ask about that because sometimes landmarks districts get started because residents feel like the, you know, the neighborhood is threatened in some way. And I was going to ask if that was, if there was a particular, or are you just were you just trying to sort of get out in front of potential threats? Yeah, absolutely. We just for clarity's sake, we need investment in this area. We need development, but it's it's the kind of questions that always say. Hey, what kind of development? Hey, what is this going to look like? How is this going to affect us poverty? And if there's no development or not in the, you know, in the past couple of years, we have seen property values just within this year, we've seen property values go up by 4.5%. Um, that, though we still have extremely affordable housing in our neighborhood, like a, a renovated house in our neighborhood sells, a renovated house sells for $100 a square foot, while a well-maintained house sells around $73 a square foot you know, let's, let's kind of consider what type of windows we're putting in and such. And, you know, are we adding on additions to the back of the house that haven't been approved through landmarks? You know, what kind of things are we doing that's actually altering the style of the house? And just in the past couple of years that I've been here, there have been some things that have been like, okay, this isn't, you know, you're, you're taking away from the architectural integrity of the house. And if we keep going down this path, then it, it's going to set a precedent for our neighborhood, for future development, so even if there is future development that is going to take place on vacant land that we have, we really need to step back and say, hey, what type of properties in our neighborhood do we have now and what's happening to those and how can we protect those further? Because I really think from a historical standpoint, you can you can go back till the 1960s and then the Supreme Court case you know, in 1971 um, where Citizens to Preserve Overton Park won that landmark uh, issue to preserve. We still have like a standing evident you know, structure um, that is just a visible reminder of that case in our neighborhood. Um, and so I think even just from that reminder in our neighborhood, the houses around it have kind of, you know, I feel like in some ways that they, you know, they have kind of suffered in a way. Um, the houses themselves, you have kind of seen how they have more wear and tear than maybe two streets over in Evergreen. Um, because of this evident reminder of something that happened in our past. And now I think if maybe in the 70s or 80s, if the mound was development developed, I think maybe that um, it would look a little different in the neighborhood um, than it does now. But this, I mean, this is just my opinion, of course, that can be clearly argued um, on all different corners. Um, but whenever I think you have something that's clearly an evident, something evident from the past that hasn't been, you know, utilized for the community to turn into something good um, and without guidelines in place to say, how can we make this not only good, but really, really good in terms of um, the design, the, you know, really planning it. So it makes it look like it's actually part of the neighborhood and almost redeeming it. Um, and that's kind of what we want. We want our houses in the neighborhood to be redeemed through a process of guidelines and not just what one investor, one developer deems is necessary for himself. Um, that, that makes a lot of sense. So let's uh, talk about VECA um, for a minute. Susie, you've been involved with a group that's been working on that. So really the same questions. Um, what are the boundaries of the Landmarks District? Um, and why? what makes it preservation or protection worthy? 
in your mind? Um, thank you, Emily, for having me today. Um, it's a great opportunity to talk about VECA. Um, the boundaries of VECA local landmarks district that we're applying for are the same um, for the neighborhood. We made a conscious attempt to include everyone within the bounds of our neighborhood that's about to celebrate its 50th anniversary with the Neighborhood Association. So we have a, a pretty long history of activism, um, participation, um, diversity in VECA, and yet we're sort of um, a quiet neighborhood. We are, um, the backyards on North Parkway start the boundary that are to the south. To the west is um, Watkins, to the north is Lick Creek, and on the east side, it goes um, up University between us and Rhodes, our, our neighbor on the east, and then it zigzags over to Springdale and goes up again to Lick Creek boundary on that side. So the, um, the neighborhood has a history of being organized and involved in neighborhood issues. Um, one of the things that impressed me is they fought redlining in the 60s, which might be a jargon term, but... Um, we have talked about redlining, lending discrimination based on race. And when the neighborhood uh, realized that redlining was going on, they, they talked to uh, banks and real estate agents that were refusing to show properties here, and, and they attack it. So um, that was one of the reasons, because of that history, we chose to include the whole neighborhood. Within that whole neighborhood, there are four national districts and they were, and it's they are the majority of the neighborhood. And in the 90s, um, Mary Wilder led a team of volunteers to went out to go out and survey the, the properties and get four national historic districts. Uh, one is huge, uh, Valentine Evergreen Historic District. The other three are smaller, and the latest one, um, Valentine Hills, came later in the process because they weren't old enough. The three outside those um, national districts either weren't old or um, for some reason were not included. And that's why we want to include them now in the local district. We feel very strongly that um, our neighborhood has a cohesion that um, we want to keep. And so we went through the arduous task of looking at every set of guidelines uh, that exist in local landmarks districts and selecting the ones that we thought applied to us. We hired professionals to help us write our own and um, through that process came up with our document. Uh, one of the things we thought was important were um, the fact that uh, we needed lots of pictures because some people don't travel into our neighborhood and see what's there, and we illustrated it as best we could. And so each district has a separate page of, of typical housing from that neighborhood. The other thing um, we did, if, if you don't know VECA, drive through the neighborhood and see uh, one thing we did years ago that sort of encourages us that we can become a local landmarks district is we purchased the uh, abandoned railroad track and and we have our own green line, V&E green line, which we maintain and support through funding. Um, we also have our own welcome center. We bought a old 7-Eleven and, and we own that. And uh, we also, when the housing uh, crashes have occurred, we've bought distressed properties and rehabbed them and we rent them out and encourage the renters to buy them. So we are um, very, we feel very strongly about affordable housing, which is one of the issues uh, that is supported by becoming a local landmarks district. Three years ago, I went to a the annual meeting in January, and there was a representation of people from 
uh, Cooper Young, and they said, watch out, y'all are next. They said, people have come into our neighborhood and have systematically tried to destroy it, and that's why we want to be a local landmarks district. And as soon as they buy up every property that's available in every vacant lot, they're going to be looking for more, and um, Valentine Evergreen is ripe for this. So we looked around and thought, yeah, that could happen to us too. We're still very affordable. Uh, we have a lot of uh, longtime homeowners. I say that this neighborhood is cradle to grave. And that means housing is available on all levels from starting out to finishing. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. We're talking about local new two new emerging landmarks districts, VECA and Crosstown with Susie Askew and Jennifer Amido. So let's let's use that as a jumping off point for a couple of other questions that I had. Um, really about what the process was like to it sounds like the VECA landmarks district is bigger than the Crosstown one. And so I'm interested in from both of you briefly kind of what the process was like. And also, you know, sometimes these these efforts are contentious. I certainly know in the case of Cooper Young, there was a lot of controversy or discussion and sort of interested in how you, if that was the case in your in the neighborhoods, and then what the process was to kind of build consensus that this was the right thing to do. So I don't know who wants to start, but I'm interested in hearing from both of you. I know that was about five questions, so I'm sorry about that. I always do that. Um, it is a building educational process. I have a background in teaching, so... Um, I see everything as uh, little blocks you build on. And I think the first building block for us um, of the awareness that we have worthy properties in our neighborhood, the the national status we gained in 1997 proved that. I've, I've always heard that Memphis has the fifth largest collection of craftsman houses in the country. And I think most of them are in VECA. And, and so there's an architectural... A bounty here that we don't we don't appreciate till we look around and see. The other thing um, we did five years ago, our chairman of the historic committee, Natasha Strong, uh, got a grant and put up signs on our signposts that say we are a historic districts, which helped. Three years ago, I got a grant and we did a series of eight talks and talked about the architecture. Uh, if you live on this street, then you have this kind of house. And look at these details in your house. They're fabulous. They don't put these things in houses anymore. That's for sure. So we we wanted people to know, uh, to feel proud of their neighborhood and to start looking at it with fresh eyes. So, so it sounds like it was, um, it was agreed pretty much in the neighborhood that this was the right course of action. I think so. I, we, we have, we certainly have people that don't agree with it. We have people on the board that didn't agree with it, but the majority of people felt like it's time to do this. For sure. What about you, Jennifer? What was the process like? And, um, and how Susie talked about this, how do you personally get involved in this effort? And then what was the process like in working through with the neighborhood? Um, so over the process of a year, actually, a couple of us um, have just been, we've taken polls, of course, on next door, um, walking from, you know, one house to another, dropping off flyers, just talking with neighbors, getting information. Um, and a lot of it actually probably spurred when um, I attended, there was a significant amount of people who actually attended the meeting on the mound last July. And when um, I was at that meeting. It was it was a little intense. Um, <laughs> it's a little tense. There was a lot of people who were vouching um, strong opposition to the development from like Evergreen and Central Gardens, and people who really know their community and really know the value of their homes and really know the value of where they live. Um, and of course, Speedway, of course, too. And so seeing that, and then coming back, I was like, okay, 
we we need we, we're at a crossroads. We need to make a decision about what is going to you know come of our neighborhood. Um, what's going to happen with? I mean, this just the mound is not the only vacant land we have in our community. There's a sufficient amount of vacant land. So we need to just kind of make a decision. And so based on, yeah, communicating with people in our neighborhood, like neighbors, walking, flyers, putting posts on Nextdoor app, serving people within the Crosstown Nextdoor neighborhood. Um, I think this this summer it was like, okay, we need to, you know, we need to make a move. We need to do it soon. Um, and so we did, started working towards the application, developing it, of course, and submitting it. Basically, just any historic district that's surrounding us has just come alongside of us. Of course, Memphis Heritage has also just been supporting us. Um, I've gotten tons of letters of support from people within our community, which, of course, is on the staff report, um, ranging from even like commercial businesses that are in our area to, um, you know, just people who are surrounding us and inside the neighborhood. We, we did have one. We did have actually two. There's two letters of people wanting to remove their properties from the historic district. One letter we acknowledged and we agreed the other letter, we were just kind of like, I don't think that's, that's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Do the location of where they are. Um, so just those two were the only two. And then we have had one letter of opposition that has come up from the developers of the mound recently that just came up. So um, that we will be engaging with the Landmarks Commission on tonight, actually. So Jennifer, uh, just to digress for a minute, um, tell our audience what the mound is. And I'm familiar with it, but you know, that was a year or so ago when it kind of was in the headlines. So just remind people what that is and then what's proposed. Yeah, so um, that's a great question. So just an overview of just the history of the mound. In the 1960s, um, Interstate um, I-40 was planned to, it was really common back in the 60s actually for the federal government to utilize public land as a way of basically just creating the interstate, running the interstate. So that way it would be less property that they would have to obtain where residents lived. And so it so happened to be that this public land was Overton Park. <laughs> and so the idea was that they were going to cut through, of course, downtown Memphis, cut through, of course, and then hit over the Crosstown neighborhood, go through Evergreen Historic District, and then go through um, Overton Park, and then jump on right there where Sam Cooper is now, um, right. and just keep going. So... Of course, demolition had already started in the Crosstown neighborhood, and I do believe I had read in the Evergreen Historic District's um, history that actually properties in Evergreen had been removed as well. Um, and, so, and of course, they those have been built back up. I'm not sure how much. I need to double check on that. Uh, but they went ahead and started, actually. So they elevated the area where that is now to make the interstate, and they actually paved it. So to this day, there's paved concrete underneath some of that dirt that has overgrown. Um, and where's it located exactly? Great. So if if you're looking on a map, it's basically dead ends right at Bellevue. So Interstate 40, if you look at it on an overview map, it cuts in, of course, going over the bridge and then dead ends right at Bellevue and then, you know, goes north and then so connects. It's to the west of Crosstown Concourse. Yeah, it's right to the west. And what's proposed for that? So that's actually a great question. Um, we have one of the issues of contention that's actually going on between the neighborhood organization and the Crosstown CDC is that um, we have not heard from the developers at all in over – actually, we just haven't heard from them since – we heard the, the meeting since July 29, 2019. There has been no engagement on their side with the community for us to, you know, figure out what's going on. Like, what's the plan? There was a significant amount of pushback from that July 29th meeting. Um, and since then, it has just been silent. Um, and so as of now, we have seen from that plan, we have seen that there has been more multifamily units planned. Um, there has been a mixed use of housing, attached townhouse style housings, uh, detached houses, of course, a little bit of single family, condo, four unit flats, um, cottages, um, and then I think a court style, I think it was like court, courtyard style, like, um, plazas. But again, this is me, this is information I have only gathered from public knowledge, knowledge that's, you know, available on the Memphis Daily News, uh, Memphis Business Journal and other articles that have published information. That's fine. So, so because this is in the landmarks district, this will give, uh, 
this will give the neighborhood and the landmarks commission an opportunity to review that. So that sounds great to me, gives that extra level of public participation, which we know is extremely important. Yes. So last question for both of you, just in, you know, a sentence or two, um, what recommendations would you have for other neighborhoods thinking about undertaking becoming a landmarks district? Susie, starting with you. Um, I have, uh, like you, Emily, I have an interesting perspective because I was on landmarks for 10 years. And uh, while I was on there, um, Williamsburg Village applied for landmark status. And uh, the staff had been cut so tremendously at landmarks that they they said they didn't have staff to handle anymore and they declared a moratorium. And when you go by land, uh, Williamsburg Village on the corner of uh, Goodlett and Poplar, you can see what happens without a district. The whole two sides are becoming walled condos and zero lot lines. And poor little Williamsburg Village has totally been surrounded by a fort. And they've lost their neighborhood. They're now internal to the block. And it's really sad to think that they couldn't get landmark status when they wanted to get protection. That next layer of protection that active neighborhoods need. And uh, there was an article by David Brooks last year in the New York Times about he really believes the only change that we can take, we can have in America is on the neighborhood level. And I believe that more and more, we can't affect change until we start in our own backyard or in our own neighborhood. And so Get involved with neighbors door to door, block to block, organize, find out their needs, um, and move from there because that's the only way we're going to affect change at this time in history. I completely agree with that. Change needs to start at the neighborhood level, that's the building block of the city to me. And those are, that's great words of wisdom. Jennifer, I know you went door to door flyering the whole, what what do you have to add to that to other neighborhoods who might be thinking about going down this road? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that's been helpful for us is just the support. I think, um, yeah, getting input from your neighbors, making sure that we're on board, but also getting support from neighboring historic districts that can, that can back you when push comes to shove, when there are people who say, well, we have interest in, you know, maybe developing this two acres of land or this is, you know, whatever. And then having people who can come around and support you and stand up for your neighborhood too. I think it's just, yeah, I think it's a matter of just, yeah, the support system for sure. Um, affecting change within and then having that layer of support surrounding you. Um, Cause there's, I mean, there's going to be pushback for sure. Great. Well, this has been such an interesting discussion. I've been talking to Susie Askew from FECA and Jennifer Amito from the Crosstown neighborhoods about their work to achieve landmarks district status for their neighborhoods. So thank you both so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. After the break, we're going to have Holly Jansen Fulkerson from Memphis Heritage. She's going to talk more with me about Landmarks District and also about some other kinds of historic districts. So thank you, Susie. Thank you, Jennifer. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm pleased to welcome back Holly Jansen Fulkerson. Holly was on a couple weeks ago as a guest and, but I want to do more historic preservation topics. That's a subject that's very interesting to me and also very integral to the built environment. And so uh, Holly's getting promoted to 
uh, semi-regular commentator role. So congratulations, Holly. Thank you. I am so honored. I'm so honored. We, I could talk about historic preservation all day. So thank and you, Emily. And there's no raise that goes along with that promotion. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> so Holly, let's just jump into it. So earlier in the show, um, we had Jennifer Amito from the Crosstown neighborhood on, and then Susie Askew from VECA. Both of those neighborhoods are pursuing landmarks designation. And I just thought we might talk about them um, individually for a couple of minutes, what we think are cool about them, what we think is worth, really makes it worth preserving and not to be redundant for what they talked about, but just to kind of reflect on that a little bit. So let's start with VECA. I used to live in VECA and it's just, it's rich in community and it's so interesting, the collection of bungalows. One of the funny things about VECA to me is that the housing is very kind of uniform. I mean, it's a huge collection of bungalows that are intact and there's, um, on some level, there's a sameness to them. But on the other hand, it's just this rich, intact fabric of a neighborhood. It really is. And I, I should have told you, Emily, but I live in Becca. Oh, you um, do? We, yeah, we actually moved to Becca um, the day that lockdown started. Uh, and I couldn't imagine living anywhere else, um, especially during, you know, quarantine. Um, our, our dog loves it. We go walk him on the green line three, sometimes four times a day. So, um, and we live right across from the green line. So it's just, it's an amazing it's neighborhood. I, I don't want to ever live anywhere else. Um, so I'm a little partial to Becca. I love all of our historic neighborhoods, but um, but Becca is just amazing. And you're and you're right, Emily. It's it's so uh, the integrity is still there, and that's part of the reason for applying for landmark status to make sure that it always stays there. And there's uh, so many different pockets, and it's it's exciting to me that Becca has decided to include all of the different neighborhoods in this uh, landmarks designation. I agree. And of course, Vecca has a long history of being a diverse neighborhood and actively working to preserve that diversity. So one thing that Susie talked about in terms of Vecca was that the people in Cooper Young had said, hey, you're next. And do you feel like that's the case that um, that Vecca's threatened or going to be threatened by inappropriate development or modification? A hundred percent. And I mean, I, I know Becca better than other neighborhoods because I live here, but I, I do drive the neighborhood and, and there are so many streets with multiple, you know, dumpsters in front of houses and, and just a lot of uh, renovation and, and house flipping going on. And, and some of that doesn't fall in line with the architectural integrity of this neighborhood. And, and so it's very needed um, to get that status to, to protect against, you know, unwanted and, and um, incompatible development. One thing I meant to ask Susie, and I didn't get a chance to, is whether the commercial areas, um, not that there are many, but are the commercial areas included in the in the landmarks or not? Yeah, I believe that they are because um, you're right. There, it's it, there's not that many, but there are a few kind of high profile ones. And there was um, a building that was just demolished a few months ago, right on McLean, um, next to Cafe Eclectic and there's some new development going in there. And I, I'm not, I've not seen those elevations. I don't know what it looks like um, because again, it's not a landmarks district. So, so there's no approval process, you know, necessary um, for a lot of these design decisions that are being made. So let's turn to Crosstown. Um, I'm very familiar with the Crosstown neighborhood, but not so much in thinking about it as a historic or landmarks district. It's a, their area is a lot smaller and it's very different. So what do what do you know? What are your thoughts about the the potential crosstown landmarks district? 
You're right. It, it's exactly um, what you said. It's very different than Becca. It's different than a lot of our, our landmarks districts. It is a lot smaller. There's a lot more different types of, of housing um, and different sorts of contributing structures, if you will. Uh, that area is is also prime for development right now. Um, and it's the same sort of thing that you see in Becca. There's a lot of house flipping and, and renovation going on. Um, I think one of the most unique things about Crosstown is that it's it's mostly, um, you know, rental properties. And so there's not a lot of home ownership in that neighborhood. And that makes it kind of even, you know, more of a, a threat against, you know, keeping the integrity intact. Sure. Well, and it certainly puts challenges out for doing the necessary community outreach and engagement. Sounds like they did a lot of that from what Jennifer said. But if you're not reaching the property owners, then there could be problems down the line. For sure. For sure. So how do you think, and I didn't tell you in advance, I was going to ask you this, but it's just occurring to me. Um, how do you, how's the Cooper Young Landmarks District doing? Is it, um, do you think it's accomplishing what the, the residents hoped it would? Because that's a relatively new Landmarks District. Yeah, um, I do think uh, that it's accomplishing what the residents wanted in many ways, but it still has not reached its fullest potential. You know, Cooper Young is one of our strongest neighborhoods in terms of advocates, and I have learned so much from them over, you know, the, the last few months and, and really getting into to my new position. Um, they they have been through a lot and they're continuing to go through a lot. If you look at the agenda for the Landmarks Commission Board of Adjustment, Land Use Control Board, there is always multiple Cooper Young cases being heard every single month. And they've had some some great wins recently, but there's you know been some not so great decisions made from a historic preservation standpoint. And the, the thing that impresses me the most about them is, is they just get right back on the saddle and, and keep fighting. And, and they've really even taken a leadership role amongst the different landmarks districts and, and have been able to offer a lot of insight to, to new districts. And, uh, you know, just, it's all about neighborhoods working together and Cooper Young plays such a, a strong role in that. And you convene um, a group of leaders from the Landmarks Districts, do you not? We do from time to time, and we just recently had had another meeting. Um, it's it that's one of the the areas that we're hoping to improve on is the communication amongst the neighborhoods, because you have a lot of really strong neighborhoods like Cooper Young, Central Gardens, Evergreen, um, and those neighborhoods can can help each other and, and help new neighborhoods to, to kind of fight these battles. Well, it sounds like what from Jennifer at Crosstown was saying that there'd been a big peer assistance uh, involvement in her application and that she found it to be very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, when Crosstown uh, went before the Landmarks Commission again last week, it was it was wonderful. There were so many speakers um, from different neighborhoods to support Crosstown and everybody's looking out for each other. We have to. So I know Jennifer said that they, their district had gotten approved and then it had to go back again for approval. Did that happen? It did. Um, it did. What, uh, it did. And it will go before the Land Use Control Board uh, next month and then on to the city council. So hopefully it will progress uh, as well through those channels as it did through Landmarks. Okay, that's great. So Holly, one thing I've always been confused about, and some other people probably are as well, is there's actually different kinds of historic districts. Like I know that VECA um, is on is a historic district on the National Register of Historic Places, and I think Cooper Young is as well. And those are very different from the Landmarks District, but they're both sort of historic designations. So can you kind of take us through um, what the federal designation is, kind of how you get it, and then how that's different from our local Landmarks District in terms of what protections you can get from those. 
Sure. And and let me preface all of this by saying um, that these are both in incredibly um, bureaucratic processes and there are a lot of steps involved. And so to our listeners here, please, uh, this is a disclaimer I'm making. Um, if you are interested in pursuing either one of these statuses, first of all, please call us and, and we can help point you in the right direction. Um, but there there's a whole list of requirements that's available on the National Trust website and also the Memphis Landmarks Commission website. But I, I'm glad to talk about just some of the basics right now. Um, so the National Register of Historic Places uh, was established by the federal government in the 1960s, um, and it's essentially an inventory and a, a, a a designation, designated status. Um, if a building or a district um, it meets certain criteria, it can be listed on the National Register. So the National Register is, of course, um, a wonderful way to provide recognition for these properties. Um, and it, it's it's also a, it's a very prestigious listing, right? You know, you you hear a buildings on the National Register that that kind of holds a lot of weight. Um, and all of those things are true, but the, the biggest difference between this national designation and the local designation is that the national designation doesn't really offer any real protection in, um, in securing our, our building's futures. Um, the, you can tear down a building on the national register. Um, let me say that again, because it happens all the time and, and there's a very controversial case that the readers might or the listeners might be aware of that's going on right now downtown. You can tear down a building on the National Register. It's only when federal funding becomes um, in, in, into play, like if, if, if that was a building that was going to receive federal funding, then an, a review process would be initiated called the Section 106 review. And, and then at that point, um, you know, the plans would be approved or denied. But that doesn't happen a lot. And especially not in our neighborhoods. You know, how many houses are you aware of that are seeking federal funding? You know, none. Um, so that really deals a lot more with commercial properties. Well, um, and, and the, um, you mentioned, I think you're referencing the Nylon Net building. Yes. But even um, more recently, that that a beautiful synagogue out in East Memphis that was just recently added mm -hmm. to the National Register of Historic Places, I'm guessing that's going to be torn down. Uh, it, all signs are pointing towards that, for sure. Yeah, that's another really great example. Um, yeah, it's it doesn't provide the protection that so many people are seeking. Um, but again, I don't want to totally discount it because it is important. Um, for me personally, one of the biggest benefits that I see from being listed on the National Register is just the, the application process. Um, it requires a tremendous amount of research. And once that research is completed and, and a, a building is listed, it goes into their database and it's accessible to everyone, that information. And I can't tell you how helpful that is, you know, to not only that that research has been compiled, but it's accessible to so many people. Um, so to me, that's one of the biggest benefits. And I, I reference national register nominations uh, on a weekly basis, you know, and, and so that that's one of the biggest benefits in my mind. Um, but again, it, it just doesn't it doesn't provide that protection. And, and that protection really lies in the local status. And that is what Crosstown and Becca are seeking right now. And um, there are other 16 other districts in Memphis that are, are have been designated local landmarks districts. So what what local landmark status means um, is that the Landmarks Commission, um, the Memphis Landmarks Commission is responsible for the preservation and protection of our city's historic, architectural, and cultural landmarks. And so the commission reviews zoning requests. Um, and any work that is visible from the street, any work that requires a building permit um, will also require a certificate of appropriateness. Now, that, of course, applies to new construction, to demolition, um, and just other types of exterior alterations to a house. Um, so it, when someone wants to make a change in a landmark district, they have to apply 
to um, to the commission, and then the commission will review it. So, um, so Holly, I want to ask you about um, what I asked both of them, Susie and Jennifer, which is that if um, neighborhoods want, if neighborhoods want to consider becoming a landmarks district, first of all, who's really a good candidate for that? I know I live in a neighborhood called Tucker Jefferson, which is close to Overton Square. And we were told a long time ago, like that ain't happening. There's just too much. There's a lot of infill. And so what makes a neighborhood a good candidate for it, first of all? And, and then what's, what's the, the process generally? Um, And we can post links to the applications in the show notes. We can post your contact information, all of that for people that want more information, but just quickly, um, what's the process look like and who's a good candidate? I'm I'm surprised that you were were told that in Tucker Jefferson. Um, That's interesting. Uh, I would say that any neighborhood that is concerned about development, um, you know, on, on incompatible development and, and any neighborhood that wants to preserve their architectural history should definitely look into this process. Um, the Memphis Landmarks Commission has a very small staff, um, but they have a secretary, Brett Ragsdale, and they have a preservation planner on staff. And, and so they really would be the best ones to answer all your questions. Um, but I would encourage any neighborhood um, that is concerned about these things to, to reach out to the Landmarks Commission or reach out to me. I'd be glad to talk to you and, and let's, you know, figure out some ways that, that we can protect. Um, the landmark status is probably not, you know, the most appropriate avenue for certain neighborhoods, but there's other plans um, and other avenues that can be pursued uh, to, to help protect architectural integrity. Um, we are currently, Memphis Heritage is uh, at in the very beginning places, phase of a, a new project um, to perhaps seek landmarks district in uh, communities of color. And um, I don't know what that looks like yet. I, I don't know um, exactly where we might be pursuing landmark status, if, if that's what we decide to do. But to be honest with you, that would be my very first time working working in it. And I'm anxious to learn more about the process myself. We talked a little bit about that initiative when you were on before. I think that's a wonderful idea. I think those neighborhoods, they're, you know, they're special cases. And one of the, one of the things that happens there is sometimes you know, they become threatened. And there's at least one neighborhood that I think an African-American neighborhood that was on there that lost its eligibility. I don't remember which one um, because just so much change had happened in the area. But uh, that's good to know. So, So your recommendation is to go forward, it sounds like. Absolutely. Um, yeah, to just explore the process and 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 if it if it can't work out if for example if the the landmarks commission you know were to tell a neighborhood like tucker jefferson y'all just have too much infill um i there are still there's other ways that um that protection can can be sought well and it's not just about me i mean right. that, that <laughs> sure. There are, other example, yeah. there are other neighborhoods besides Tucker Jefferson, but um, yeah, but there's a lot going on in Tucker Jefferson right now too. And, and if with, with, you know, Turner Dairy and, and if there was, if, if y'all did have landmark status, then that would just be another layer of protection that you would have to keep your neighborhood the, the, the way, you know, the reason why you bought your house in that neighborhood is because it had a st- certain historic sense about it. And it was, architecturally, uh, you know, historic. So, well, well, I will be calling you and <laughs> put your contact information and the Memphis Metropolis show notes. So other people will know how to get in touch with you so they can get help from you in figuring out their good candidates and then how to sort of um, start the process. So before we bring off Holly, anything else, um, Happening at Memphis Heritage, we talked about your 
your project, um, lifting up um, African-American historic places, which I'm super excited about. But anything else you want to let the audience know? Sure. We are actively working on our 2021 programs, uh, which will be virtual, uh, at least for the first half of the year. And and we'll see how uh, things develop with the pandemic. And maybe we can look to, you know, get together in person at at some point. That would be nice if that could happen. But if not, we're we're prepared to go virtual. Um, And we're excited to offer a lot of educational opportunities about what historic preservation is and how you can be involved and how you can protect your neighborhood. Uh, We are also about to um, make an announcement uh, about our 2021 calendar, which is uh, the theme of this year's calendar is historic cemeteries in Shelby County. So um, we uh, will be doing some programming related to that as well, working with, uh, there's so many cemetery groups around town uh, that that work very hard to protect endangered cemeteries. And we're hoping that maybe Memphis Heritage can help to facilitate these groups getting together and providing educational opportunities about how we can preserve the cemeteries in our county and do cemetery cleanups and things like that. Well, you know, that sounds like a wonderful topic for a future Memphis metropolis. I would love that. That would be great. And for listeners, the Memphis Heritage puts out a calendar every year. It's always on a different theme, like historic theaters. And there's just been some great ones. And it's always a great holiday gift. So it is. It's a perfect stocking stuffer. It's only $10. And the pre-sales are going to start very soon. So check our website. And we also, we had a very special photographer this year for the calendar. Uh, She is a um, amateur photographer, but she's so talented. And she's a new board member of ours, Julie McCullough. And if you are on Instagram, you might know her from her very popular blog called At This Place in History. So um, we were just so thrilled that that she could take our pictures and they're beautiful and we can't wait to show everyone i'm looking forward to that holly so thank you for joining me um you've been listening to memphis metropolis and wyxr holly i look forward to a future conversation thank you so much emily You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.